Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, presented by Ken Impress. This week's episode is the opening chapters of Douglas Wilson's Gashmu Sayeth It, How to Build Christian Communities That Save the World. Listen to the full audiobook available now on Canon Plus. Introduction The point of this small book will be to help the reader to better understand the crisis of our times, along with the demeanor we as Christians are called to cultivate in the course of such a crisis. We also must include an explanation of the basic strategy that we've been pursuing here in Moscow for a number of decades now. This is because we have been greatly blessed in our community, and so it is absolutely necessary for us to equip ourselves in two areas. We must educate our immigrants, and we must educate the next generation. If we do not do this, then we will be faced with two disasters. The first is what might be called Californians moving to Texas and continuing to vote like Californians. The second is the son of a billionaire growing up without ever breaking a sweat or having any knowledge of what calluses might be like. Experiencing blessings without understanding the basis of those blessings is like dancing blindfold along the edge of a precipice. As Cotton Mather put it, faithfulness begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. Or as Moses described Israel's future prosperity and apostasy, Jeshuan waxed fat and kicked. Deuteronomy 32.15 Moses knew that once you are well into a blessing, it is perilously easy to take it all for granted and simply to assume that continuation of that blessing is your irrevocable birthright. Deuteronomy 8, 1-20 The Apostle Paul saw what had happened to the Jews in this thoughtlessness and warned the Gentile Christians in Rome against committing the very same sin, Romans 11, 19-21. And he issued the same stern warning to the Gentile Christians at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 10, 1-11. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Proverbs 30, 21-23, ESV There is a pressing temptation, whenever someone unexpectedly comes into great blessing, to react thoughtlessly and glibly, like some cracker redneck who won big at Powerball. We handle it the way a two-year-old would handle a glass of whiskey. Whatever you do, whatever you say, however you think of it, don't be that guy. A Minister's Task One of the things I need to do early on in this small booklet is explain what I think I'm up to and why you should read any further. The message a minister is appointed to proclaim is the basic gospel message, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, oriented, as it necessarily must be, to the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, verse 27. This is not a message torn out of the scriptures, but rather a message that is situated at the center of all scripture. But the wisdom of God is not placed in our trust so that we may speak it into a void. The preacher is not supposed to learn what he is supposed to say the same way a parrot does, or an answering machine, and then say that regardless of the circumstances. No matter who calls, the answering machine says the same thing. This is not the commission of a minister of the word. No. Preachers of the gospel must also be students of the culture they are sent to. A minister must be a student of the word, but he must also be a student of men. He must study them, not just men generally, but the men of his own era, the men to whom he is charged to bring the gospel. When the Lord speaks to each of the angels of the seven churches of Asia, the message for each church is different. Same gospel, different sins, and so a different message applying that gospel. And men are not to be studied so that the minister might best know how to flatter them. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. 1 Thessalonians 2.5, 
ESV, emphasis added. Rather, they must be studied because their sins are different, their blind spots vary, and this is why their fortifications against the Spirit of God must be attacked differently. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 A man who is charged with pulling down strongholds must be a student, therefore, of two things. He must be a student of the gear he is using, and he must be a student of the tower he is charged with toppling. He must know the gospel and the scripture that houses it, and he must also know the state of the current imaginations, whether those imaginations are healthy or diseased. He needs to know where to attach the ropes. This means that in order to have a true impact, a local church must understand some of the fundamental theological issues in play and how they intersect with the large cultural issues of our day. Chapter 1 Our Culture, What Remains of It We are in the midst of a massive religious, political, cultural transformation, but we cannot assume that this is all a downside. God shakes what can be shaken, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Hebrews 12.27 This turmoil is rattling things that need to be rattled, and also rattling things that need to be understood, so that they might be defended in wisdom and not maintained on cruise control. In the meantime, speaking of traditions, there are no pacifist traditions left. All worthy traditions must be militant in order to survive this time of upheaval. And in such a time, Christians must be conservative when it comes to everything that the Spirit has accomplished in the history of our civilization, and we must be progressive with regard to all the things He has yet to do. The Sinful Symptoms It is difficult to make it through the evening news without encountering multiple examples of our contemporary follies. The blood guilt of abortion on demand, the insanity of transgenderism, the idea that more government can save us from the weather, the acceptance of socialist collectivism, the indulgence of snowflakes, the incompetence of modern educators, the epidemic of food guilt, the pandemic of father hunger, and more. The disease lies deep within, but the splotches on the skin are pretty ugly. Most people understand that something is desperately wrong. Is there any biblical response to it? The Disease Within the root of every rebellion in every culture must always be identified as pride and the lust for autonomy. But this central sin manifests itself in different ways in different times, using different methods, concepts, and techniques. Below, I have listed some of the ideological tools that are currently being used on us. Please be aware that there are areas of overlap between these. Secularism, the idea that a culture can be religiously neutral. This is not a nice but difficult goal. Rather, it is an incoherent concept. All cultures serve their gods, and ours is no exception. Our pretense of neutrality does not make us less worshipers, but it does guarantee that we are most confused about our worship. Darwinism The idea that we somehow arrived here by ourselves, which makes secularism a scientifically respectable concept. A century or so ago, many Christians thought that we could make our peace with Darwinism, but the bills are now coming due. Egalitarianism the idea that blessings for others are tantamount to oppression for me. Egalitarians view everything as a zero-sum game. If someone else gets a bigger piece of pie, this necessitates that someone else is going to get a smaller piece. But in the world God made, the pie grows. Value-fact distinction. The idea that reality is divisible and that science is in charge of the facts. 
while each individual can invent and tailor his own values in any way he pleases. Relativism, subjectivism, the despotism of feelings. The idea that the world of facts is not the controlling reality. Reality, in other words, is optional. Admiration of the cool kids. The idea that what really matters is copying a pose. And so some might worry that I'm adding intellectual requirements to the simple gospel of Christ. Don't worry, it is actually the reverse. You generally need a couple of years of grad school before you can really buy into any of these mistakes. Keep in mind that when we answer these challenges in the way we must, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are not supplying Christ as the solution to the problems as posed by these idolatries. He does not give us answers to their questions. He gives us his answers to his questions. Christ is the one who frees us from these idolatries by toppling all six of them, burning them at the Kidron Brook, crushing them to powder, and scattering the dust on the graves of the people. 2 Kings 23, 6 and 7. Chapter 2. Alternative City Walls. The need of the hours for the church to help establish a defined counterculture. This requires much more than defined denominational boundaries or sectarian carve-outs. There needs to be a defined center, the church, a defined staging area, the kingdom, and a defined mission field, the world. In order to accomplish this, we need brick and mortar to build the alternative city walls. We've been working at this for some decades now in Moscow, and we know how we mix that mortar. Now, one of the key ingredients in that mortar is unrelenting antipathy to the ways of the world. Our danger is that any success in this, what people call our community, will attract people who love the walls and the security they provide, but do not like how we lay the bricks. They love the fruit, but do not care for the orchard. They like how the church works because they are actually assuming the world, at its best, should be able to work that same way. They want to believe that the world is, at bottom, more or less reasonable. They love how different the church is because they have a hidden assumption that the church is not all that different. This does require some explanation. Woe unto you, when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say unto you, which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Luke 6, 26-28 Jesus teaches that when we finally have that good testimony we have been striving for, we ought immediately to see a red danger light blinking on the dashboard of our sanctification center. Something has gone terribly wrong. But objections come immediately to mind. We note that some people know how to get everybody to hate them simply by being jerks. Pagans certainly hate one another, Titus 3.3, and that doesn't make the other despised pagan godly. And Peter says that we should rejoice when we are persecuted for the sake of Christ, 1 Peter 4, 14, and 16, but goes on to add that we must be certain that it really is for the sake of Christ, and not because we are being what theologians like to call punk Christians, 4.15. So how can we tell if we are guilty of this false credit that takes as a badge of honor a sign that we are actually being disobedient? The answer is found in Luke 6. What do we read in the next breath? Those who can take legitimate comfort from the fact that they are slandered are those who can love their enemies, do good to their haters, bless those who curse them, and pray for those who are malicious in their mistreatment. They come into your shop to buy something while sneering at it, and so you must give back scriptural change. If you pay them back in their own coin, then this encouragement does not apply. It only applies to those who can do a little jig when they are reviled. Luke 6.23 those who pick and choose passages from the Bible to encourage them in their selfishness will often find themselves having to pick and choose phrases out of the same text. 
This passage applies, in other words, to the Christian who is an honest tradesman, a diligent father, a hardworking and cheerful mother, whose children are cheerful and well-loved, and is as friendly as it gets. When a controversy starts, he knows how to conduct himself, but it wasn't his surly face that started the controversy. A required antipathy to the ways of the world is not exactly an obscure teaching. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise its heel. Genesis 3.15, emphasis added. This enmity between two seeds cannot be erased, and attempts to erase it are actually attempts to go over to the other side. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James 4.4, emphasis added. If you want to be God's adversary, then simply make friends with the world. That's all you have to do. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 This means that you cannot strive for Christlikeness in this dark world without bringing down on your head something of what came down on Christ's head. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. John 15.18 So stop acting surprised at things that the Bible talks all over the place. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. 1 John 3.13 And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Matthew 10, 21-26 The enmity will end at some point, after you are dead and deep. Jesus pointed out that after prophets are dead and gone, their reputations start to improve. This is because the only manageable prophet is a dead prophet, and if enough time passes, the ungodly start to build memorials to the deceased godly, lining it all with marble. Matthew 23:29. But whenever a living Christian leader comes back from a hot engagement at the front, with a couple of arrows through his hat, the careful men are quite willing to offer their critiques. It would have been far better had you remembered to. It reminds me of Dwight Moody's great comment in response to criticism of his approach to evangelism. I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. It also reminds me of Ambrose Bierce's magnificent definition. Rear, noun. In American military matters, that exposed part of the army that is nearest to Congress. But why, the persistent critics want to know, can't you be more like the saintly men of old, whose marbled tombs grace the avenues of our city? The first thing to recall is that the marvelous city they refer to is not built by the critics, but rather by the criticized. What saintly men of old are they referring to? Perhaps Spurgeon, who was vilified throughout the course of his ministry? Or Augustine, who wrote his famous confessions, because he was answering a smear campaign that was hindering his ministerial effectiveness? Or like Athanasius, who stood contramundum? that world being the Christian world, the world of accommodating bishops? Examples could be multiplied to the point of being pretty tedious. This is not something that has happened from time to time in history. It is regular enough to be called a law. The principles don't change. The names do. Because the names change, this makes unprincipled people think that everything is different now. We are in the 21st century now, distinguished in this respect by being exactly like all the other centuries that came before. Now remember that in our generation, feelings are the queen of the land. People don't want to know if a Christian apologist has actually wronged someone else in the course of his ministry. They just want to know if the other guy felt wronged. And of course, it took about 10 minutes for the unbelievers to figure out that you could get most Christians to back off just by saying, ow, 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 ow. We've managed to get ourselves into a pickup basketball game with the godless, where they all get to call their own fouls, and the fouls that are called on them can only be called by that guy standing on the sidelines one of the subs for the godless. 
and we call this striving for fair play. Jesus called it right when he said that the children of light were sometimes a little slow in the uptake. Luke 16.8 As for the infidels, our central offense is not the presence of what I call the quote-unquote satiric bite. Do not be distracted by what they call a foul. They simply call them because it works. We listen to it, we put up with it. In their book, such things are not even an offense at all. Are you serious? They don't care about that. In their understanding, the offense is where the jabs are aimed. Remember that these are the people who laugh at the taunting of late-night comedians, who host banquet roasts that are filled with vile insults, who host parades through all our major cities with floats celebrating vile deeds, and who otherwise sit in the seat of mockers. So why are they so sensitive all of a sudden? Why do they act like snowflakes? It is a tactic, and they don't like it when the tactic doesn't work. As the old blues song puts it, it ain't no fun when the rabbit's got the gun. When David went out to face Goliath, he was not looking for a dialogue partner. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 1 Samuel 17.46 And when Nehemiah established a great wall that separated the people of God from the unbelievers, the unbelievers did not take it well. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. Then sent Sanballat his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. Wherein was written, It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king according to these words. Nehemiah 6, 3-6 You really should give up preaching, and blogging, and publishing, and declaring, and challenging, and prophetically denouncing. And why? Gashmu saith it. And who is Gashmu? We are not sure exactly, but it distresses us that he is displeased. Can you preach Jesus that way? The answer is, of course, to preach Christ. But it needs to be observed that it is not possible for a man to preach Christ while simultaneously ignoring the words of Christ. Preaching Christ means preaching both his words and his wounds. You cannot preach the cross, which is a scandal, without scandal. There is no such thing as sanitized gospel faithfulness. It doesn't exist and never has. Now, the Christian church is a unique kind of community in that it is a community built up around scandal. Scandal blows most communities apart, but scandal, the scandal of the cross, is the foundation of all true Christian fellowship. Christ was crucified by all the respectable authorities and his followers were instructed to tell the story of how that happened down to the end of the world. The church, like all human institutions in this fallen world, has repeatedly been tempted to drift into respectability. But this message of the cross lies at the center of our existence, and there are enough antibodies there to fight off every form of a creeping carnal respectability. But with that said, there is a wrinkle. Over time, more than a few Christian churches drift into a form of organization that is more threatened by scandal than a Christian church really ought to be. And so they pull their skirts away and begin reacting to the possibility of cross-related scandal in much the same way that ordinary human associations would do. This leads us necessarily to the next chapter. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the full audiobook, available now on Canon Plus. Just go to mycanonplus.com and start listening today.